How's it going, man? It's good. I'm in the middle of a move. I'm going to be, I don't know if I told you, I'm going to be moving to Asheville in North Carolina. Yeah. Yes. uh, I never got to ask, like, what was, uh, what was the reason there? Started to get out of California? Yeah, well, uh, I had heard from a lot of people, uh, especially out there, that because of COVID, people are realizing that they can work remotely or a lot of their jobs, they don't need to be in a certain city. And so LA is a really high cost city. And when I was touring half the year with Steel Panther, um, it was fine. I was like making enough to, to get by, have all the things that I need. And if you compare that to living in a low cost city, it seems like an insane amount of money, but here it's like just enough to get by. And when COVID hit, we basically had to stop touring and my, my salary potential got pretty much cut in half. Uh, So for, for the, for the last nine months, I've been living off of a reduced salary and basically, it's basically like if if they cut your hours in half at your, at your job or whatever, um, but still have all the same expenses. So it, it looked like the time to make the move, um, before my savings got drained and, yeah. and there's still enough. I bet. Yeah, there, I, I still had enough savings to actually do because, like, moving costs a shit ton, and yeah, and just the amount you have to put up to to pull it off. So I wanted to do it when I still had the time and not sort of drag my feet. Right. And, and I had that conversation with my with my employers, and you know, I said I still want to work for you guys. I still want to do this job. Can I do it remotely? And so many touring guys live in in cities that aren't necessarily where their bosses are based. You know, right. a, a lot of guys live in Nashville cause that's sort of where all the buses and gear live. Um, yeah. Or there's guys that just live in the middle of nowhere, but there may be a couple hours drive to a major airport. Right. And that's what they do. I think, I think the, uh, drum tech for Foo Fighters, I think he lives here in Omaha actually. Like, yeah. It's just kind of like, Hey, right in the middle of the United States. So you can really get anywhere you know, four hours or so at least, you know, if you had to fly somewhere. Yeah. And and we do so few of our, of our live shows are in LA anymore. I mean, for the first 15, 15 something years of this band's existence, it was all LA shows every week. And the, the music scene sort of went downhill. Um, the cost of real estate just made it impossible for that sort of mid-sized music venue to, to really thrive. And so there isn't really a place for us to play in LA. And then yeah. I don't, I don't see concerts coming back in California for a long time. So we have to basically go where the work is. Right. So is, does that mean steel Panthers kind of making a move too? like, well, two of the guys uh, left LA a couple of years ago. Um, okay. One guy uh, moved to Vegas, which isn't too far. Um, right. And another guy moved to Colorado to be closer to his, to his family. Okay. So we're already sort of doing that thing where we're a little bit split up. And so many bands that I know that I've worked with, they just live all over the place and they get together when it's time to tour. Right. And then they say bye. <laughs> so um, I guess I, I should have introduced you <laughs> who you are. <laughs> um, we didn't uh, formally start that. But uh, so, Nick, this is... Uh, I'm Nick Rucker. You're Nick Rucker, the oddest thing in the world. Uh, yeah, two, but, uh, two guys with the same name. Yeah is, is um, that the is that the premise of the podcast? Like two dudes who have the same name 
Yeah, we should start our own podcast now. It's two neck wreckers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, thanks for coming on Rad Country. And uh, just, I've got a lot of friends and, and growing up in the music world, I guess, uh, that, you know, respected probably Yellow Card. Yeah. And that's kind of like definitely where I wanted to start. It was going back to those days, um, whenever you were as a sound engineer getting, uh, you know, getting your feet wet, I imagine at that time, or well, you were already pretty well. Yellow card and I go back really, really far. So when I was 19, I was in a skate punk band called staring back and we were from Santa Barbara and we were on this indie label called lobster records. And there was this band called yellow card out of Jacksonville, Florida, who they were sort of courting that label because they liked a lot of the bands that came from that label. And I did my very first van tour when I was 19. We drove across the country straight from Santa Barbara to Jacksonville to play maybe two weeks of shows. It might have been it might have been just five shows, but it took two weeks to do the whole tour. But we basically drove all the way to Florida to play five shows with Yellow Card. Um, Ryan Key wasn't in the band yet at that point. They had a different singer. But it was uh, LP was the drummer. Ben was on guitar. They had uh, Sean on the violin. So it was like they had been doing this thing in Florida that was kind of different. It was like they were they were fast pop punk, but they had a violin player who would do backflips off the stage. Um, I don't know if he's still doing backflips, but we were all just we were all just kids, and we were just trying to make it happen. And it was my first time leaving California. It was my first time seeing Gators in real life and they just yeah. they just hang out in the apartment complex where the, the bass player lived and we stayed with him and his wife for a bit so yeah it was a trip uh that was my very first experience touring on my own and um we kept in touch they they put out their first record on on lobster records um with this is after ryan joined the band and i did a couple little one-off songs with them. We did a song for a, a punk goes pop, uh, oh, compilation yeah. thing. Um, we recorded that in my dad's wood shop. And then when I was maybe 21, um, I got a call from their, their manager, I guess. And he was like, Hey, they're in town. Uh, we need to do an EP really quick. So I scraped together, some recording equipment that I'd, that I'd had. And I drove down to LA and we set up in uh, a studio called hard drive, which was where Jimmy world did the bulk of bleed American. And that was a record they did on their own. So it's this small little studio in North Hollywood. Um, it's well, it's all analog. It's all, they have a tape machine. It's one guy named Doug who runs it. Who's been probably my biggest, recording influence and mentor for my whole adult life. Um, I've continued to work with him over these last 20 years. But yeah, we we set up there. We did five songs real quick. And that was, I think, the last time I recorded with them. But yeah, they just uh, they took off right after that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, because uh, that one was what, Underdog? Yeah. Is that, the, yeah. that was the EP. And I, I guess I'd never even listen to it until I, I realized that you had, you know, 
recorded it for them and done all the mixing and everything else. And, uh, and that that's crazy because literally I think, was it the next one was ocean Avenue and, uh, everything after that, which yeah. they just kind of exploded. Yeah. So they, they had signed to Capitol, um, and the underdog EP was put out under, I think it was put, put out by fueled by ramen, but it was basically there. Like you guys are on the label. We're not there yet. Let's do an EP to sort of develop. And then once they had the songs for ocean Avenue, it just, it just took off and they got huge from there. Yeah. So whenever you, uh, went in to record, uh, underdog, was that, were those all songs that they were basically playing already? They just hadn't like got them recorded. Or yeah. The, like, if I remember correctly, like all those songs were written and ready to go because they had been just hitting the road nonstop at that point. Like they were back in the early two thousands. If, if anybody remembers indie bands were like super hot and that was the thing is to like get an indie band. And if you were a major label, you'd sign them and give them some money to just go on the road and just play and develop. Yeah. And so they, they did the van and trailer thing just nonstop for, for several years before that record yeah. came out. So that would have been like early, early, early two thousands. Yeah. Like, like, I guess I always associate that to like the story of the year days. Like, uh, the, I, I guess for me, what I was listening to at the time, but yeah, yellow card, all that kind of smaller than they just, got huge just suddenly it was it was crazy but that's what the world called for i guess so. yeah I, I remember seeing them on it was a an mtv video music awards thing where all the sort of hot bands will do a couple a couple minutes of a song and it was hoobastank doing the reason and then right after them the stage sort of spun around and then yellow card started playing so that was <laughs> a it was a cool time for music and for for southern california music um and so you shared a story with me a long time ago. Well, like we haven't known each other that long, so let's not say a long time ago, but a while back, not today, um, about how you were kind of playing different clubs in, in California and would randomly run into Matt Nathanson. Uh, oh, yeah. He's... I wanted to uh, hear that on this. <laughs> I I used to work in, so I grew up in Santa Barbara, which if you don't if you're not familiar, it's this um, beach town. It's about 200,000 people, 250,000 people. And um, it was probably the nicest place in the world to grow up. It's just the, the best weather. And it's where the ocean meets the mountains. And it's just beautiful. And it's not fair because when you grow up and try and make a living, it's it's either the service industry or or you are rich. And that's those are the two types of people that, that live there. So um yeah. In the late '90s and early 2000s, however, there was a really, there was a cool music scene, and there was a few bars there, and I sort of got into that very early on. I was doing sound from age 17 um, in a couple of bars downtown, and there was this tiny little club called the High Bar, and it was above a Mexican restaurant that was sometimes a, a concert venue, and this guy Matt Nathanson would come through. And it was just him in a sedan with his guitar. And he would entertain, if there was five people in the room, he would put on the best show. And his his in-between song banter was just so funny. He's so hilarious. And his songs are great. And he's just, it's, it's weird because you see like someone singing these really heartfelt 
songs about love and loss and and then you you just hear these like profane rants between songs and it kind of like that's sort of like the dichotomy of what his shows were like back then um and he just kept hitting that circuit because he he was from san francisco so he would just drive down do the show get in his car and drive back and that's how he hustled uh for so many years when he was when he was uh coming up in the scene and I remember the, I think the last time I did sound for him was this, um, American Pie 2 came out and I was friends with the local DJ at the radio station and he called me up and again, like everything in that town is so last minute. It's so laid back. He like called me and was like, Hey, uh, I need a sound system down at the old movie theater and, uh, it's Matt Nathanson. He's going to do a song off, off the, the soundtrack. I just need a mic and two speakers. And so I put that stuff in my little minivan and drove down to the the theater and set it up. And he did a version of Laid by James, which was in that in that film. Uh-huh. And then I think that was the last time I saw him in person. Um, and I don't remember the year of, of that that movie, but it had to be two thousand two or two thousand three. Um, I I feel like that's like e- even as you're describing it now, him coming out and just doing his own thing like one dude with a guitar and maybe a backup guitarist but uh the first time that i saw him he was opening for matchbox 20 and he literally just came out on stage him and uh with his acoustic and a and a backup guy like i was like i was sitting there thinking man i could have done this but he's well of course he's very talented and has like some fucking badass songs but uh yeah, it was just crazy. Just like, you know, Matchbox 20 is this huge band. They have a huge production. And then this guy just rolls out with an acoustic guitar and he's just like, like you're in a bar. <laughs> yeah. And, and no matter the size of the club or no matter if you've, if you've never seen him before, if you're not familiar with him, like he, he finds a way to, to just rant between songs and just get the crowd going. He's just so entertaining. Yeah. Um, I did, I think the first time I, I snuck into the Viper room once to see him and this might've been before I was 21, but he was, he was touring with a band at that time. So he had a, a drummer, bass player, guitarist, it was a little four piece thing. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I definitely know like the second time I saw him was he opened for OAR and then he had a full band. So he's pretty, I think it's just whatever is called for at the time, I assume, but that's awesome. And then uh, went on to then, and this, these are things that I've learned from you, uh, from speaking to you, but uh, gone on to record, and I think, right, for, with the Plain White Tees, possibly? Rhythm yeah, of so there was a song called uh, The Rhythm of Love, and my, my good old friend Tim from Santa Barbara wrote the song, and... This was, I want to say it was 2009. I just moved to LA at this point and I was living in an apartment in Eagle Rock. And I had my gear at a studio in downtown, like a rehearsal room. And yeah, Tim, who I'd known since high school, basically, and he was in my band in my in my 20s. We were in a band called Bright Life. Uh-huh. And he went on to join the Plain White Tees, who was a band that I had I had mixed a record for back in 2000, I think. 
um, we had the same management back at that time. Um, so Tim had joined that band. They did the record with Hey There, Delilah, and then the, the record that followed. Uh, t- Tim had this song. He had this idea. And it was kind of based on like the Hey Soul Sister from Train, that sort of like, that just yeah. that feel. So so he had the chords, the lyrics, the melodies, and 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 this sort of like I wanted to have like an islandy feel. So we went down to my to my lockout downtown and just cranked it out over two days and he slept on my couch. And the the song that came out was basically what you heard on the record. Um but they they went ahead and they recut the drums and they recut a couple, I think they recut the bass. But it ended up being my guitar, my electric guitar, which is the opening lick that you hear. And then like my shaker yeah. and my organ and um, the tambourine. Um, and he called me up to let me know that that song was going to be the lead single on the next record. Uh-huh. And it was kind of a shock uh because we hadn't like, we hadn't discussed how I was going to get compensated for that song. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, I was in a band at that time who our bass player worked for Irving Azoff, who's the one of the biggest managers in in music. And so I basically said, "Hey, I need. Can you like be my manager for this for this deal?" Because we were working with. It was basically between me and Hollywood Records, and I didn't have anyone. Um, right. in my corner to sort of speak for me. So yeah, my, my good friend, Chris Knight, who I think he manages, um, he, he works for the, the management division of, of Rockefeller records. I forget the name of the, of the company, but he's very successful in, in music management. Now he manages Robin Thicke and a couple other artists. Um, he basically brokered that deal for me so that I could get, properly credited and properly paid scale for, for playing on that song. Because when they, when they went to go cut the record, they, they left my parts in because they were already sort of right and they couldn't get it better. Right. And I found out about that after the fact. And once, once that was apparent to me, I was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Well, if that's my plane, we need to, (laughs) we need to sort of uh, come to an agreement, which is if, if I can offer any advice to, to producers and songwriters who are collaborating with people, it's like really important to get that stuff ironed out before, before you even start working on the song, because as soon as the possibility of something, maybe having success, um, money gets really sticky. And then when you're dealing with labels and, and publishing companies and other artists, there's a lot of other things that maybe you can't really work out on a handshake deal because, you know, me and my friend are talking, Hey, let's do this song. But there's also a push, a publishing company and a label and all these other, these are entities involved. And it's not as simple as saying like, Hey, let's do this and we'll figure it out later. So I would yeah. say without, without being like a dick about it, try and try and work out something that's fair ahead of time, just in case so that it's clear. Right. <clears throat> well, you kind of have to anyway. I've, I've felt like even starting with co-writes on different songs, personally, it's just easier to be like upfront and 
Hey, let's get the let's address the the elephant in the room here. But uh, if something were, you know, to come up this, what are we going to do? Yeah, because so, as a producer, when you do a project on spec, which is how I approach that song, was like, hey, come down, I'll do the song, and you don't have to pay me up front, and we'll figure it out. Um, yeah. But I think it is important to have something in writing before you do a project on spec, even if it is someone who is one of your best friends. Cause you never know. Right. Yeah. Well, so speaking of like money and the music industry and everything else, one of the things I guess that's, that seems to be, you know, talked about quite often across all genres is just like how Spotify works now and how iTunes and, and how the musician themselves sees very, very little of, of the actual money from, the streams and everything else. And I feel like, um, personally it's like, yeah, I can sell some CDs at a show and, but I'm not at a point where I'm making any money at all by putting my music on Spotify or, you know, iTunes or anything like that. What's kind of like, I imagine, you know, even working with steel Panther that, you know, they are getting the amount of streams that probably is beneficial to them. Um, to have their music on there, but just, uh, what's your opinion on that as far as the pay goes for the, those platforms? Well, you know, for the entirety of the, the touring and record industries, as those were working together, it was that you, you toured to promote the record and the record was the thing that really made the money. And now it's like, you put out the record to promote the tour and the tour is the thing that makes the money. So Steel Panther's been in this pretty unique situation where they've been around long enough to own their own content and they've separated themselves from the label system. And that's, that's just because they've had so much success in touring for so many years that they're, they're able to be independent of that. And so it's basically their their company, their business is is the touring entity, and they also are the record label, and they also are the management firm. So they're they're like a fully like in house kind of operation. Um, yeah. I don't know what they earn on Spotify, Apple Music. I know that they that they get something. Yeah, but also it's, they. Okay. The, the costs involved in them putting out a record now that they're on their own are so much less um, because they're, they'll pay for their record out of their pocket. Like they'll pay for the studio. They'll pay the producer. Um, they have a team who does marketing sort of like a la carte. So they'll, they'll have a guy who they say, hey, here's the product. You market it and we pay you what you charge to market it as opposed to the label system where it's like, the label pays for everything. The label has their marketing department and they just withhold any sort of disbursement to the artist until they've been paid back for, for their investment. Right. And so, and if, and I guess if they don't meet that investment, it's like, Hey, we want our money back. Well, yeah, it's, it's like, <laughs> or, I was just, I, I just rediscovered this record from Creeper Lagoon that I, that I used to listen to maybe 20 years ago. And I was reading about it because I wondered what happened with that band. And they made a record that cost $2 million to record. 
and then it cost another million dollars to promote and it it flopped and they broke up shortly after but like they were basically in debt three million dollars to the record label before the record label pays them back a cent yep. and that as as an indie band that's a lot of money and you would have to you'd have to move a lot of units to to get that paid back and that was before yeah. the, the before the days when labels were doing 360 deals where they're taking a cut of your merch and a cut of your touring so uh, imagine like a, a label fronting that kind of money but also they're paying for all the different departments that are working your record. They're paying for meals, they're paying for flights, they're paying for hotels. They're fronting a uh, cost to go on the road. They had used to have this thing called, I don't know, like a touring budget that a label would give you money to go out and, and support you supporting the record. Yeah. Um, I feel like all that's kind of gone now. I, I feel like um, going from yeah, even recording, paying out of pocket whenever I record um, a song or just knowing somebody uh, that records uh, and going back to now, like I I'd recently wrote that book and I'm getting it published and I wish I would have treated that, the publishing side of, of how I like do my music as well because it would have been so much easier just to do it myself and probably cheaper, relatively cheaper than to um, try to have somebody else do it and they're going to control everything. And it's like, well, this is how I wrote it. I'd like to keep it this way, but they're like, well, that's not going to fit what we want to put out. So we're going to switch it. Whether you like it or not, you sign a contract. So I think I would think even with the, my suggestion, I guess, and maybe you would agree is that somebody that's even making music now low you know the small scale like i even am is like do it yourself it's just everybody is doing it themselves anymore it seems like anyway you know anybody that has garage band on their computer can put out an acoustics album that sounds like anybody else that could put out an acoustic album it's it, i i feel like it's if right now I was to say, hey, I'm going to quit my day job and I'm going to go do music, I would lose my house. <laughs> I would lose my car um, and I would be walking to do some busking downtown Omaha, uh, <laughs> maybe taking the bus. But uh, that's I think the, uh, music, the, the whole thing of it is is now getting to where everybody's doing it if that makes sense. Like it just seems like anybody that has an iPhone and time and knows how to play guitar can get on there and make a video. And then you just never know anymore. It's sometimes you hit the lottery. Yeah. The, the, the barriers for entry have been lowered significantly and there are so fewer gatekeepers. I mean, there's still the two big ones now for getting your music to be streamed. Um, but also it when you talk about like losing your car and losing your house and all that like i the the cynical person in me when like whenever i see a an, an up and coming young artist that's really doing well and really has a lot of buzz about them i kind of wonder like who's their parents because like any like any great art throughout history like it takes a lot of money behind it for you to be able to just do it full time and right. the the young people and the kids who are sort of have the most time to do it and to get really good at their craft, 
there's money behind it. And whether it's from their parents or from a trust fund or whatever it is, I'm not saying everyone who's a trust, like everyone who's an up and comer, like they must be a trust fund kid. But quite often that's one of the, the barriers to entry is just having the funds to be able to put aside those expenses of, of being a young adult. And if it's yeah. renting a, an apartment or paying for your car or whatever, you know, you, you can work three jobs and, and bartend and wait tables like so many people in, in LA do to, to really pursue their craft. Um, but to be able to get out there and go in a van for months at a time, it's so expensive. And as a young kid who's broke, it's, it's prohibitively expensive. Um, I, my first tours in, in a van, like there's five guys in the van and it costs each one about at the time it was about a thousand dollars a week just to go out and do this because it was fuel, the, the payments on the van, food, the occasional hotel. And you're not making that much money when you're playing in front right. of you're maybe getting like $100 a night to do a show. So you have right. to like work your job and work your ass off and save up to lose that kind of money, but to go and gain the experience of being out there and playing every night. Cause that's the only way to get good in front of people is to play every night. Yeah. I, I definitely know that the only way I ever got better is whenever I was playing three or four shows a week at least. And then working full-time on top of that at a full-time job, but I just always felt more comfortable in my own skin on stage whenever I was playing all those shows back and forth. I know that I, I totally like what you're saying, as I remember a lot of friends of mine too, really like we slept in the van so many nights just because at a Walmart parking lot, just because it's just like, it's not realistic to like do that because you don't have enough money coming in. You have more going out than you do coming in. And like, especially like what you say, where it's like you're splitting maybe $500, $300 for a gig, you know, and between five guys or four guys doesn't go very far. Yeah. And when you, when you <laughs> drove eight to 10 hours to get there in a, in a 10 cylinder pulling a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so hard for independent bands to just get out there and do it and how much easier it would be if, if uh, daddy paid for everything and we, right. we all don't have that luxury, but I think someone was, was pointing out like the, uh, there was a tweet from an artist. I'm not going to quote the artist, but it was like, you should be supporting independent artists. If you're tired of how many artists out there are trust fund kids. And yeah. that sort of made sense. But I think that that, that quote was written by someone who is a trust fund kid. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, <clears throat> it's, I, I think even whenever I was, it was like 2003 and we were playing pretty regularly and we would play, well, I was in, in our in our metal band, I guess, but we were playing with. It was funny. There was just some bigger name bands at the time that they were like, "Yeah, you can play a show with this guy and this, but you got to sell tickets." 
you got to sell 40 tickets if you want to play. And it's like $15 a pop per ticket. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, we can do that. And then, uh, you know, five people are like, oh, yeah, I'll come. And then you're stuck buying 35 tickets and you're out $700 <laughs> just because you want to play with somebody you heard on the radio one time. <laughs> yeah. And that was like every Tuesday night at the whiskey. I mean, that was one of those clubs that was always pay to play bands in the opening slots. And that was how they made it work financially, unfortunately. Um, because the cost of real estate is so crazy down there that your overhead is so high that you can't just like have good bands come in, pay them what they're worth and have enough people come through the door and buy drinks, pay for parking and all that to keep it running. You have to subsidize it with bands that maybe don't fit the bill or who are just awful, but have the money to buy the tickets or have the friends to buy the tickets. And so the, as a, a lover of music going to those nights, it wasn't fun for us either. Cause you're just like, who is this? Yeah. <laughs> the, I think like the worst experience I had was, uh, this was probably a year ago and I did want to get on a, it was like a serious XM, like highway finds tour that was coming through Omaha. And there was a couple of people that were, I was like, that would at least look good. Uh, on, a resume, I guess, whatever. And, uh, <clears throat> so he was, the owner was like, yeah, I sell 15 tickets. And I was like, well, that's realistic. I can do that. But then I show up and the owner's passing out free tickets at the door on a regular there. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Motherfucker. Like I just busted my ass selling 15 at $15 a piece. But, uh, and then basically, you know, you sell the tickets anymore that you sell, you get to keep a portion of that money, but I'm used to like where it's like a bar is going to pay me $125 an hour or something like that to come out and play for three hours. And then you walk out of something like that and you made $6. Um, but you did a fucking load of, a boatload of work and you just like, that ruins it for a lot of people. I think people are like, fuck this after that. Like, <laughs> It really does. Like the, the job of a promoter is to promote and to pass that on to the artist is kind of rough. We, yeah. we, we had one band buy onto a Steel Panther tour once. And I think it's the last time we're ever going to do that. Um, yeah. Cause they, it's just not fun for their fans. Yeah. Cause it wasn't a good fit, but it made sense financially. I think at the time they were, they were in a different place financially and they sort of needed to do that to make the tour profitable. But nowadays it's like, let's just find a way to make the tour profitable without resorting to that. Right. Did, uh, so getting into steel Panther, you were basically from ground, like from the very beginning, were you always working with them? Like even before they were such a, you know, like, packing the house every time that they, you know, play a venue. Well, they were, they were packing the, the clubs on sunset, uh, for years before I met them. Um, so they, they started at the Viper room in 1999 and which wasn't that long after metal had died. So it was still like, not, it wasn't quite cool to be like doing a parody of hair metal on the strip a few years after it had kind of died. But they, they started doing that, and it slowly built. 
and and then they were selling out the Viper Room every Monday night, which is the silliest night of the week to to do a show. Uh, they moved across the street to the Roxy, which is a little bigger. And then when I finally met them, they were at the Key Club, which I want to say it had a capacity of about 800. Okay. Um, and so when I first started with them, it was regularly packed. And it was a late show. They didn't hit the stage until midnight. Um, but yeah, I'd met them in Santa Barbara because they, they ventured up there a couple times to work at the club that I was, was the sound guy at. And we just kept in touch and they, they needed somebody right when I was kind of working a job that I hated. And I asked to come to a show, I called up the drummer and, um, he called me right back and was like, Hey, what are you doing for work? We just had to fire somebody. And it was just like that. I had that turning point. It was like, okay, like my life wasn't going so well. I'd gone through a breakup. I was living in a town that wasn't mine. I had no friends. I was working a job that I hated. And then this opportunity came up and it just really quickly grew into my full-time gig. And then here we are 14 years later, still doing it, but just on this massive scale. Yeah. How, how has it been? Like, as far as, I mean, <laughs> for people like, it's always, it always like kind of baffles me. Like whenever I bring up steel Panther to people, because a lot of people don't still don't know who they are. Like you'll say that, you know, the Midwest give a little bit of a break because I mean, you guys come through here once or twice, you know, like I, I usually have to drive to Kansas city. You did come to Omaha whenever you played with stone sour and that was it, it still baffles me that nobody's, you know, some people haven't heard of them, but Steel Panther, of course, is a satire, like 80s hair metal band, like just the craziest lyrics. Um, some of them are pretty good. Yeah, pretty I, th good. I think the, <laughs> the key to their success is getting getting eyes on them. So because their music is so vulgar, it's it's hard to get them on, on active rock radio. There's a few yeah. DJs who were ballsy enough to play their music and speaking of Kansas city that, um, Johnny dare, the morning show guy, um, yep. he loves steel Panther and he, he has enough market share and enough clout and power at that, at that station to, to play it. And, yep. and no one's going to tell him what to do as long as he's within FCC guidelines. So yep. in towns like Kansas city, they'll, they'll pack the Midland, which is like a 3000 cap theater. So yeah. anywhere we go where people can lay eyes on them, they develop a following very quickly because it's a show you have to see to fully experience. And so much of the show is the stuff that happens between songs for those of you who haven't, who haven't seen them live before. Cause they're, they just, they just riff and, and rant and they'll, they'll talk for sometimes painfully long amounts of time between songs <laughs> for and, you for you <laughs> but it's great for me because it's it's fresh and it's different every night and i see it every night and yeah. sometimes there will be a thing that is said on stage and i will be doubled over laughing because it's something that they haven't said before and only i know yeah. that because i see them every night right so yeah I, I don't find it surprising that if there's a place that that maybe doesn't have an active rock station that will play them and that we haven't been to in person that it's, it's hard to break into those markets at this point when we could go, you know, to Kansas city, up to Chicago, 
and over to Louisville and and places where we know there's going to be a solid crowd. Yeah. And the uh, you guys were actually supposed to tonight be in Kansas City at the Uptown Theater, which is, I think, even bigger than the Midland. Oh, wow. Or at least, I think, uh, the last time I was at a show there, I, I it's about like the same kind of setup as the Midland, like as far as an old theater style deal but uh yeah you were supposed to be there tonight and we were going to do this interview in person i know i <laughs> i wasn't surprised with the uh with the covid numbers that they they pulled the plug on those two shows they're getting postponed um yeah. but yeah iowa was was in, under a state of emergency uh i think that started up a week a week ago or a week or two ago and so that's that's when we sort of got the news um but we we did just do a couple shows in Tennessee, and this was right before Tennessee shut back down again. But uh-huh. I I felt safe in those environments because it was it was these big venues that maybe hold fifteen hundred people, and they were doing maybe a hundred fifty to two hundred tickets a night, and all the seating was spaced out, and they were actually enforcing mask wearing. And so like, if you didn't have a beer to your lips, you had to have your face covered up. Um, and there weren't, there weren't people on stage. There weren't people running around backstage. I was pretty far from everybody. Um, it wasn't the same with, we did a gig in Oklahoma city, um, a month ago and it, it felt like 2019. It was just like, Hey, open the doors and let people do whatever. Um, despite what, what my advance had told me and what, I was told by the the local promoters is that, Oh yeah, we're enforcing masks and temperature checks and all that stuff. And once we got there, it was, it was just free for all shit show. Yeah. I, it's just seemed like a half sold show. Cause they, they, they did limit the tickets, but people yeah. were just crowding the front and there was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's freedom country down there. So we just had to get in and get out. How do you feel as far as like being, you know, with the music scene and concerts and everything else moving forward, I, I honestly feel like it's going to be 2024 before we're even seeing a glimmer of what life probably was like, you know, a year ago um, with just loaded in with concerts and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's going to take a, a huge effort from all different types of governments, local, municipal, state, and federal. And then what about us going back to Europe and us going back to Australia? Um, we were scheduled to go to Australia in February and that had been on the calendar up until I think a week ago. And then they finally postponed it because the numbers are getting out of control again. Yeah. So it's everyone I talk to in the industry is just like, this fucking sucks. Yeah. And it does. I, I miss working. I miss traveling. I miss doing what I get to do. We've been lucky enough to do a few outdoor things. Like we did some drive-in shows when they were doing those. And we did a few drive-ins in Pennsylvania, a few down in Texas. And so the outdoor shows I thought were cool. Um, I don't know that they were super profitable for the promoter, but it it was a cool way to do a concert and for people to get out and get out of their house for a bit and, and have a good time. Um, I think that's what we all need right now, but I I think the slipping back into the, 
you know, going out to bars and restaurants and, and mingling. Um, it's just pushing this thing down further down the line to where our, our, our only option is going to be when more than half the population has gotten the vaccine. And so, right. That's the only thing I, that's going to, that's going to allow this to happen again. It's counting on people's behavior to, to flatten the curve was, I just don't, don't think it was going to happen. No, I, I, it was so, because I travel a lot too for work and you would go one place and it would be extremely, you know, everything was enforced. Everything was a big, a huge deal. Uh, you come back to Omaha and it never really, it's like, nobody's going to yell at you. If you walk in a gas station, you forgot your mask. That's kind of like how I chalk it up. Um, and now it's getting to where it's like, it's weird to see people without them, I guess. Um, and I think that personally, even like just saying 2024, I think people are going to have to get out of the mindset of being comfortable, like being out in public again. And like, it's going to have to just relearn all this stuff that, you know, we took for granted, I guess all these years, but, um, I don't know. It's just been, it's been so, such an odd year, but such a good year at the same time. There's been good and bad. So I can't fully complain. Yeah. I just feel for you guys personally. I feel for you, like whenever your paycheck and everything depends on you guys going out and playing shows, you know, and you working and traveling and all that. It's, I, I, I know last week I had to cancel a trip to Chicago just because you can't go there without quarantining for two weeks coming out of Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. Doing, doing this job, you're really limited. Um, you know, I need to be healthy and I need to not have contracted this thing because when the time comes for us to go do a weekend of shows in, in Florida, like we're doing in December, um, I need to be able to do that. Yeah. And I can't be like, whoops, I was at Thanksgiving with some friends and someone had it. And now I need, I need to stay home for two weeks. I don't get that luxury. Right. Um, and I can't go and like get a regular job because I need to be available for whatever Panther has. Because if they say, Hey, next week we're doing someone booked us for an outdoor show somewhere. Um, yeah. I gotta be able to do it. So right. yeah, it's been, it's been super limiting, but super freeing. Okay. I I got to make a record at home back in March and April with a really good friend of mine. Um, just because I had yeah, the time. You, you sent me some of the the clips from it. Yeah, it was, it, it's sad because I have to, I'm selling my house and I just got this studio built back in February and I put every little last bit of my savings into it and it turned out great. And I got to make one, one record in it. Um, that I'm really super proud of, but I get to pass yeah. this, I get to pass this on to the next, the next person that, that wants to live here. And I get to go move somewhere that I'm really excited to live. And, um, every, every time I tell someone that I move into Asheville, they go, Oh, bitch. that's cool. Cause anyone <laughs> well, who's, anyone who's been there knows how pretty it is. Oh yeah, it is. Like just the East coast in general is, is awesome. Especially like this time of year, in North Carolina in general is just 
it's there's just so much to do. Yeah, like, and I'm I'm super into nature and and whenever I'm on tour, I will visit botanical gardens. I don't go to like the city center and go like bar hopping. Like I go, I go and I see nature on my off time. And yeah. so that's the stuff that, that floats my boat. So I think being forced to live in LA while it is pretty and there is nature here, it's just getting too hot all the time. And so it's too hot for me to go out and enjoy nature. So yeah. the, the hiking season is, is shorter and shorter every year. And then at this time of year, it's dark at four thirty. So if you're going to go on a hike, you've got to go in the morning. Because if you yeah. go if you go on a hike at two o'clock, you might get stuck in the dark on the way back. Yeah. So I'm excited to go out east and explore what what is out there. Um, I was there on tour with with Steel Panther. We did a show at the Orange Peel, and I had a day off the day before, and I just fell in love with the place. I was like yeah, I could actually live here. And of all, of all the places I've traveled in the U S that's the first time I've actually had that feeling. Yeah. When is, uh, when is that move official? Like when are you moving? I, I might be driving across country, uh, around Christmas. If all, if all goes smoothly with the, the dual escrow thing that happens. Cause I've got yeah. to sell one and buy one at the same time. And they have to all sort of line up, which is tricky when you're doing things across country. But it all happens really fast. I mean, you think like, Oh, I'll move someday. And then once you, once you like pull the trigger and an offer gets accepted, like it's on and you have, oh, I know. it's, it's just fucking go, go, go. So every day for the last month, I've been purging stuff that, that we're not going to take with us, selling stuff on Craigslist, moving stuff out of storage, packing boxes, and it's just nonstop. And so this week, now that it's Thanksgiving, I didn't go see my family because I'm trying to not kill them with COVID. And yeah. I'm taking this weekend to just chill out and do some things that I've been wanting to do that don't involve packing things up at the house and, and cleaning and and showing things for the for the the people that were looking at the place. It's just I can live life for a couple of days until the emails start coming in Monday. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, uh, you're probably, I mean, once, unless you're going to, or go back and play a show there, it might be a while before you're back too. So it's just like, how long you, you grew up there. So yeah. it's probably gotta, gotta be a little bit of a like shit. It's <laughs> the, the word I've used to describe it is bittersweet because yeah. California was the promised land. It's the, the place where everybody was trying to go. Yeah. And it's just gotten really expensive. Um, with all those wildfires this year, it was just like I had that realization. I'm like, oh, like it really affects the air quality and it's actually hard to go outside. And there's days where you're not supposed to go outside. Um, yeah. There's a really, really awful homelessness crisis here right now. Um, there's a lot of people. And I think that I don't thrive on that kind of environment. Uh -huh. And my wife definitely doesn't thrive in that kind of environment. Yeah. So this was like, as soon as I mentioned to her, Hey, maybe we could move. She like, she didn't care where, but, in the car. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but we went out there, uh, about a month ago and, and spent a couple of days out there just to see what it's like. And she fell in love with it too. Good. Well, I know my aunt, she lives in, uh, Santa Rosa and talked about, 
the wildfires and everything else and just how, you know, it's every couple of years she's got to leave her house and she doesn't know if she's ever going to be able to go back. And, um, I felt bad for her. She's, you know, 80, 80 some years old. And, you know, it's like, it's the last thing you want to be doing, but at least, uh, you're going somewhere where you don't have to worry about that and you get a winner. <laughs> yeah. I, we get more than one season there. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for people that like the heat and, and are down with that. Yeah. Like LA's it's got sunshine most of the year, but it doesn't rain and that's why there's wildfires. So yeah. it's this, like, it's this double edged sword. So I, I feel like, I'm in a position in my life where I can do this, where I want to do this and where that's been the blessing of this pandemic is that it's made me realize that I can do this and that I want to do this. And then I have the time to pull it off. Cause if I was trying to do this in the middle of a, of a touring schedule, I don't know how I could do it. I mean, I've, yeah. I've needed to get my wisdom teeth taken out for 20 years and I can never find a week period where I can, you know, six months out go, Hey, Let's do it on this week because I never know where I'm going to be. Right. So I can't imagine taking two to two and a half months to just work on moving house and how I would pull that right. off. Yeah, because I imagine every time that you finish a tour, you're just... I don't yeah, want to do shit. Bit. I don't want to leave the house. Yeah. 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 It's um, just like... Yeah, because like, <clears throat> you, you, you really live two lives. And that shift takes a toll on you just mentally and physically, like not just the jet lag and that you're tired from, from working and living on the road for, for weeks at a time. You have to adjust to like being in a partnership with someone else. Right. And And I I feel like even people as, you know, people in the crowd and everything else, it's, they don't see that side of what all goes on behind the scenes of, Hey, I played a, you know, they played a show last night until 11, 12 o'clock at night. They're doing it again tonight. They're doing it again tomorrow and might have one day off. And then you're like, so when I remember when I was a kid and uh, my friend was like, yeah, I met Aaron Lewis and he was a huge dick. And I, (laughs) and I was thinking, I was thinking to myself now, I'm like, well, yeah, he was probably touring every single night and you were the 50,000th kid that walked up to him and wanted an autograph. And yeah, he's just trying to get people through, you know, the crowd, go, go, go. And uh, I could definitely see where that would, from your perspective. I think if you're you're a kid and you want to approach an artist at a show, you got to get them when they're like at the hungry part of their career. When they when they're like down to hang out outside the, the bus and just say hi to everybody, and not when they're in the grumpy part of their career, and then yeah. like if you wait even longer, you get them in the gracious part of their career where they're just like they're glad to have you there. Yeah. So yeah, you guys, it was Satchel that brought the that kid on stage that one time, wasn't it? Yeah, that Aaron guitar. Aaron, Aaron Fisher was that his name? Aiden I Fisher. Can't remember. Aiden. Aiden. Yes. yes. And then. Everybody's like, holy shit. Was that just, was that planned or was that accidental? I think that night it was, it was maybe the second time that he'd gotten up. But yeah, like Aiden's dad had a big role in, in helping get him to the front. But it was a great, Uh, like, that was a great moment. 
you know, even though he was like sitting on a chair, but just to see a kid shredding Van Halen in front of a huge crowd, it was really cool to be there. Yeah. Well, sir, um, we're about all the time that I can give up this evening, but thanks for coming on. I'm sure that, uh, I think we answered all the questions that I think the people that listen to my podcast or our Justin's not here, but, um, that listen to this will got answered. So thanks for coming on. And, uh, uh, honestly, man, like we're, we, we don't, we didn't talk during this podcast. Like we typically talk, but I'm really, uh, rooting for you. I hope the, the, uh, move goes awesome. And I hope that you're able to, you know, really kind of make yourself your family, um, you know, at home there. So I appreciate the time and it's, it's been great to talk with you and we should, we should do it again, even if it's not on a, on a recorded format, just to, uh, yes. catch up and see how we're doing. And yeah, I wish you the best and, uh, yeah, we'll get, we'll get through winter together and we'll figure it out for sure. And if, uh, you're traveling <clears throat> across the country and you need to stop in Omaha, just let me know. How far is that off the 40? Oh, that's a ways. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I'm doing all, I'm doing all the, uh, all the stops off the 40. Cause that's the one that goes all the way okay. through there. Yeah. Oklahoma city. Well, next time you guys are, uh, touring through this area, we'll definitely come through, but yeah, I'll call you. All right, man. <laughs> yeah. It's been a all pleasure. Right. Dude. Well, thanks Nick. We'll talk to you later, buddy. You're welcome. Talk soon.